Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back to OnScript. I'm Matt Lynch, a co-host of the podcast, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. At OnScript, we aim to bring you into some of the conversations happening in the field of biblical studies. In this episode, our newest co-host, Chris Tilling, interviews Douglas Campbell of Duke Divinity School. If you're not familiar with Douglas's work on Paul, just run a quick Bing or DuckDuckGo or whichever search engine you use uh, search, and you'll see that he's a high flyer. And he's making a move now to put his scholarship out into the mainstream to make it more accessible, which is what his current book is doing. And we hope you enjoy this conversation. And as always, it would be super helpful if you could review us on iTunes or in the New York Times or wherever you have an ability to do so. Special thanks to Ed Hatke for production help and to Tommy Molman for his marketing support. We hope you enjoy this. It's a pleasure to um, welcome Douglas Campbell here today. We're going to have a quick chat about Paul and Apostle's journey. has just been published by Erdman's. And I wanted to point out that uh, at least Douglas Herring thinks that this is the best book on Paul <laughs> since Acts, at least according to the back cover. Um, Douglas, <laughs> thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here on this gorgeous, it's a sunny yeah. day in Hawley. And we're indoors as well. I know, let's get that. this over with. We'll get this over done with and then we'll go out in the garden. Now, this is the question. Why did this book need to be written? What are you doing in this book? Ah, I am trying to provide a Campbell and a can. So, obviously I've written some technical books on Paul and I'm arguing that he needs to be substantially reconfigured and re-understood but those books are not very accessible and so Erdman's told me that what they needed was um, a much more accessible account of how I was reading Paul and so they leaned on me to do this introduction and I thought what I could do is utilize material that I'd been developing in class uh, in my teaching uh, for some years now, but hadn't seen the light of day in which I'm trying to weave together the theological development of Paul with his actual biographical and missionary development. I didn't really think anyone had ever done that before, um, but I thought that this was this is a good way of teaching Paul because it gives us a story. Mm-hmm. So we hang things on a story, which is really how our minds think. But it was also uh, an interesting way to grasp that his theology is developing and shifting and he's becoming a much smarter, more effective, practical theologian as his career unfolds. So if you were to put this up against other books on Paul, I mean, what are the major differences apart from the relationship with um, chronological development and such like? What, what is mm. it that you're doing in mm. the book that offers a unique spin on things comparing to I don't know, Murphy O'Connor or, or even Tom Wright's new book? Yeah, well, there's a lot that's pretty different. For, for a start, the actual account of Paul's life is based rigorously on Paul's letters. We start with the letters and feed in Acts. So I like Acts. I think 99% of the information in Acts is good. But I, I do think it's out of sequence um, in terms of strict chronology. 
Um, so if we use a critical chronology based on the letters, what I think we end up with is a strangely um, extensive pool, because you end up with a 10-letter canon, and you end up with very early letters. So I, I would locate First and Second Thessalonians around about the year 40, 41, mm. 10 years earlier than most people locate them. Pretty revolutionary yeah. to have written texts about the Jesus movement yeah, yeah. about 10 years after Jesus was executed and then, according to his followers, and I agree with them, resurrected yeah. um, in Jerusalem. It's incredible, actually. And that's just the start. And then I've yeah, got yeah. the um, prison letters a little earlier in his career than most people place them because I think that they're from a slightly from really what's a middle period before all the trouble starts in the Aegean Sea the trouble starts in um, really in 51 52 Paul is struggling with with rival missionaries and I think he writes these letters just before that Ephesians Colossians Philemon I think he writes them from close by Colossae in the um, Lycus Valley Mm. so locating those letters there at the front of the Corinthian correspondence opened up something that I found quite surprising, which was you, you get a model of a Pauline church, and then you go to Corinth, and you see that model being subject to all sorts of stresses and strains, which he then has to navigate. Right, right. Um, so that's different. And then you've got all the, the so-called justification stuff is actually where it belongs in a kind of a circumstantial blitz at the end of that phase of his life. Um, and, and so you end up with a, a very different sort of feel um, for the Apostle. So it's a book, in other words, where you're really, you're really outlining the, the historical realities or the particularity of these texts extensively, trying to situate the letters in their own particular trajectory and narrative in a way that you may not have done in some of the more technical books because you're dealing with broader brushstrokes here. Is that some of what's going on? Yeah, it is, and also trying to show how the theology makes sense of that. The the circumstances make sense of the theology and the theology makes sense of the circumstances and they both only make sense in relation to one another. So so Paul is really a missionary and he's a practical theologian. And this is how we need to read him. Right, right. Now, the theology, it would be good to pick up on that. Hmm. I mean, typically people will speak about different camps in Pauline scholarship and salvation history or justification and apocalyptic. <laughs> and um, and of course, um, you use the word apocalyptic an awful lot in the deliverance of God and you've used an acronym and another one. Can you tell us <laughs> what is your basic approach to reading Paul that distinguishes it from others in terms of his theology? Well, I read him as a Christian um, in the church on the assumption that the church is right about its confession uh, concerning Jesus. So when when Paul says Jesus is Lord, I agree with him. I think Jesus is the Lord. Um, So I'm writing from within the circle of belief where God is a reality who breaks into our reality and really what it's what God is doing and what God is up to that counts. Um, I'm also interested in the way Paul begins to articulate that this God with whom he's so deeply involved is a, a, a God of three persons. There are three actors. There's someone he calls the Father, someone he calls the Son, but refers to mainly as the Lord, Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit, too. 
is uh, doing all sorts of very important work. And I think apocalyptic um, hits that harder or grasps that more clearly than the other approaches to Paul. Mm. It, it, it knows that the starting point for Paul is God, not Paul. And I think all the other starting points think the starting point for understanding Paul is Paul. Right. And Paul's background. And I, I think this is a really big mistake. I think Paul is telling us a lot that where he wants us to start is with God. And that's where I want to start as well. So the book starts with God, revealed through Jesus Christ, and then seeks to understand other things in the light of that. And that's really what Apocalyptic is saying in the first instance. It's saying other things, but but that's one of the big things. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard you know, some of your critics... I don't use the word apocalyptic in here. Oh, right. Yeah. I think it's not even in the index. Yeah. <laughs> Which is worth bearing in mind. Yeah. But the notion is in there. Revelation yeah. is in yeah, here. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's this sort of Trinitarian revelation of, of who God is. Right. Um, right. That constitutes the apocalyptic. Now, some of your Christians Trinitarian argued, gathering. A Trinitarian a gathering of us, it's not just information. Uh-huh. God's yeah. not just giving us new information like we're a computer. He's handing off a really important DVD or something. God is folding us into a relationship with God. That's the key. Right, right. So I, I sometimes speak of Trinitarian communion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, but now I just want to bang on about apocalyptic because it's fun. Um, some of your critics, you see, have suggested yes. that in in speaking of apocalyptic... These dogs, Basically. these dogs, yeah, these yeah. mutilators, yes, exactly. evil workers. Basically, <laughs> you are not allowing for continuity. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, you're a Marcion. So, yeah. so my question is, yes. why do you hate the Old Testament so much? <laughs> well, that criticism's complete garbage. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just stupid. So you like the Old Testament? I love the Old Testament. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, but can cross um, that one I love it because I'm a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> I don't love it because I study the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. All these commitments to what precedes Paul, and they're very important, um, need to flow out of the Lordship of Jesus. And that's a very secure place for them to flow out of. So, in the light of Jesus, who is the Creator, we understand creation. In the light of Jesus, who was the Messiah, we understand Israel. In the light of Jesus, who was the Word of God, we understand all the other words that God has given to us. So we look back from this location and we see these fabulous continuities stretching back before us through history and through time and through the cosmos. We don't know what they are until we might dimly sense them, but we don't know which bits are really important, which bits aren't so important, until in the light of Christ, our minds are clarified and we, we see the grand plan mm. and grasp the key to the Old Testament is Christ. The key to the cosmos is Christ. He's the key to everything. Right. Um, so there's a very powerful continuity there, but it must be approached in the right way. Right. And this right. is, my critics don't seem to understand this or they resist it. Yeah. They're worried about it. They're anxious about it. They have um, continuity anxiety. Right. And um, I want to tell them to put their hand in Jesus' hand, walk on the troubled waters, and desist from trusting in their own frail, fleshly approaches to these questions, because they will prove unreliable. 
Right, there's an altar call here somewhere, isn't there? There always is, Chris. We need a prayer yeah. ministry for yeah. session. Come to Jesus. Right, right now. Even when your salvation is historically anxious, <laughs> he will calm your fears. So, okay, this is this is an interesting point to, to maybe put flesh on the bones here. What Can you give us an example, then, of where insisting on continuity in the wrong way, uh, where that happens? Yeah, sure. Uh, excellent question. Um, if we're approaching this whole process from the front instead of backwards in the light of Christ, if we're, we're, we're kind of, Jesus hasn't arrived yet, so we have to kind of work out what way we're facing before he arrives. You can see, you can see straight away we're in trouble because we're not able to understand God from the revelation that God has given us to understand God with, which is Christ. But let's, let's have a go. And what you'll find a lot of, um, Christian thinkers in the Western traditions, Catholic and Protestant, will say that the way we understand this God and the way that God relates to us fundamentally, deep down, is uh, politically and legally. So we have a legal relationship with God. So God is a rule maker and a rule keeper and a pretty ferocious one. God is, in fact, uh, something of a potentate. Uh, He's a monarch uh, and a judge who will act to punish those who step out of line. And because we come to these conceptions before we get to the gospel, to base the gospel on them, Mm. because we're working forward, so we're building up from a kind of a foundation, a set of foundational insights, we're not really allowed to change those. Once we get to Jesus, Jesus is going to have to fit into them. Mm. We've already made our key decisions, and now we have compromise the gospel because what christ reveals to us is that god's relationship to us is familial and one of friendship and love and commitment and unconditionality and these relationships are much more powerful and much more intimate than rule governed and legally structured relationships so we've displaced all the key metaphors that god wants us to work with and all the key structures and we've displaced them with something that's actually much harsher that really isn't the sort of God that we're involved with at all. God does not relate to us, ultimately, as a law keeper. God relates to us as a loving, heavenly parent. And what parent will abandon his or her children when they don't fulfill certain yeah, conditions yeah. and keep certain rules? I mean, our God will never abandon us, mm. as Paul says in Romans 11. When he's, he's thinking most clearly about this when he's talking about his, his fellow Jews. Uh, God's commitment to Israel is irrevocable. Mm. They might be temporarily pushing back, but it is irrevocable. This will never break because God is that sort of God. And, um, yeah, so if you start in the wrong place, bottom line is you don't really know who God is. Yeah. That's that's not a good thing. So you're saying, saying in a sense, then, that interpretations of Paul, when they get it wrong... They've already made up their minds about key or axiomatic truth claims about who God is and how salvation works before they get to Jesus Christ. And what you're doing here is insisting that we get this the right way around, that we begin with Jesus Christ. And then in light of Jesus Christ, we can we can evaluate all claims to truth about who God is and as well ponder the relationship between Christ and the scriptures in terms of continuity, which needs to be there. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep. And most Pauline interpreters don't 
seem to grasp these issues clearly, and most Paulan interpreters don't seem to read Paul in a way that's consistent with these insights. But I, I think Paul was very clear on this stuff, and I think he's dominated in his letters by this thinking out of Jesus Christ, by this dynamic that comes out of that place where he suddenly had God revealed to him as God truly is. Right, right. And one of the words you used as you summarized um, your argument just now was was unconditionality. Right. Now, I, you know, John Barclay's book, Paul and the Gift... Yeah, uh, he doesn't we, like this word. Yeah, right. Mm. And we, we had him on an interview on Onscript uh, a, a while ago. Now, how... How does your understanding of the word unconditionality or unconditional relate to the way that John uses the word unconditioned? Uh, is there a difference here? He speaks of the perfection of grace in terms of unconditionality and says that you're perfecting it in all of these ways, and particularly that, the, and, and that Paul doesn't. I mean, is, what is the difference mm. between you and John here, John Barclay? Um, well, John is an elusive thinker sometimes. Um, so I'm not 100% sure what he would say if he's sitting in the room. But I think there's a lot of overlap, actually, between what John wants to say and what I want to say. So I think when John says that God's relationship with us is unconditioned, he means God looks at us and reaches out to us and relates to us, irrespective of what we're bringing to that relationship. So we can be immoral this is a very odd way to think because ancient people were very dessert oriented particularly when they're informed by philosophy and in certain jewish traditions mm. as well so I'm, I'm fully on board with that god is definitely reaching out to people who have not earned that approval i would want to say something a little bit stronger than that and say that god is not only reaching out to people who don't merit it but he's actually not going to let go of people, even if they never merit it. Hmm. And I think John wants to see Christians respond to this, and I think he might be a little a little more anxious than I am about that never letting go. But I would want to say that that is emphatically the case for Paul, because while we were still hostile, God sacrificed his only beloved child for us, and, and this tells us that God is reaching out to us and grabbing on to us in the strongest possible way, uh, irrespective of how we respond to it. But then John would want to say to me, well, aren't we supposed to respond to this revelation? And, and I would say, absolutely, yes. We are very much supposed to respond to what God has done for us and to allow ourselves to be transformed and to work at being transformed. I'm totally, totally on board with that. Um, and have a lot to say about it, mm. in actual fact, as does Paul. Now, I think John doesn't see this dimension in my thinking and my work, but it is there. Yeah. And my next book will certainly... This book actually lays that out fairly clearly. Yeah. Paul, Paul has very high expectations of his converts, and he really expects them to work hard yeah. at their salvation. That doesn't earn them their salvation, and that doesn't keep them in their salvation. That's like a benefit of salvation. Right, right. Um, yeah, so... I would say that God's relationship with us is unconditional, and I, I would agree with John that nevertheless it has very, very high expectations of mm. us. Great. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of common ground here. There is. Yeah, there out. actually is. Yeah. So when John is speaking of incongruous grace and the perfection of unconditionality, I we, like we, all can, that. we can explore all of these yeah, things. Yeah, I think um, he sees more distance between us than there is. Yeah, that's, that's there. Really there is a point of difference. Um, 
I absolutely... Well, again, it might be actually a confusion. He thinks my emphasis on unconditionality erases human agency, and it doesn't. I, I'm fully comfortable with a very strong divine and a very strong human agency. Yeah. So maybe again, maybe again, this is just something of a misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, let's th- think about this. I'm deeply misunderstood, Chris, except by you. Yeah, except... Thank except, you. Yeah, I thank the I Lord that we, you've been we, sent. We have the same uh, um, medication. Maybe. That could be it. Yeah, that, yeah. That's it. Yeah, I, I'm guessing. Now, this this was a it's a really challenging book to read. I mean, th- this leads me in to talk to you about the the human agency that that call for discipleship that is mm. really tangible and evident in the book. In fact, I don't think I've read a book on Paul in in quite such a while that has has so deeply challenged me in what it means to be a Christian and to and to follow Jesus Christ, the ramifications mm-hmm. of this in my own life. And um, perhaps you can say a little bit about how why did your book become so to use maybe a slightly cheesy word, but prophetic in its edge, deeply challenging. Um what what led it in that direction in a mm. way that's quite I think quite unique. Um well, I think I'm showing the effects of teaching for 15 years in a divinity school. And what we're trying to do there is equip Christian leaders who are going to go out and plant and pastor churches in a very challenging environment. So I'm located in the States, but having spent a lot of time in New Zealand and Canada and the UK and Germany, I know that young Christian leaders are really facing massive challenges now, and it just isn't enough to give them um, somewhat desiccated academic positions without showing them how a lot of these positions evolve into dynamic, effective, but challenging church planting and church nurturing strategies. And this is what Paul would have wanted. Paul was a missionary. And if you're not getting the fact that he's a missionary and he wants you to read his texts and go out and make little communities of disciples and disciple them, you're missing the point royally. (laughs) So there really shouldn't be any academic pastoral disjunction when you're analyzing Paul. And if there is, you're occluding a huge part of the situation. Right. Yeah. So it's the subject matter itself. The subject matter itself has driven me. Yeah, has driven me to appreciate just how passionately Paul cares about churches. And, And I'm wanting to simplify things to the level where it's not just a bunch of academics who are reading my books, but I've got young Christian leaders, and not necessarily young, um, who are actually enacting this work on the ground and seeing it work and bear fruit. And if it isn't working and bearing fruit, I need them to write to me and tell me, Mm -hmm. because I'm probably misunderstanding what Paul is doing. But I think it will. I've I've seen it happen. I've seen pilot projects with this type of church doing incredibly well yeah. flourishing yeah uh, certainly in the states yeah i mean a lot of this is all bound up with your own activism and the things that you've been getting mm. involved with with prisons and such right can you right. say a little bit about how that's informed what you do with paul yeah, and, well, and vice versa sure i mean um i didn't come to prisons because of paul but once i was involved with prisons uh, i certainly started to notice stuff in paul <laughs> he was in prison a lot um, so w- there's a lot of things that, that happen there. One is I've learned a lot about how 
what people do in prison and how they write texts in, in prison. So that that's deepened my understanding of what's going on in Paul. Um, I'm recently, I, I haven't dug deeply into this, but I've, I've recently begun to return to the notion that some of these very crafted texts in Paul, you see them particularly in Ephesians, but they're in um, less disputed letters like Romans as well. Very, very long sentences, a lot of prepositional phrases, participle heavy, um, ornate, um, measured. Scholars have never been entirely sure what to do with those and have come up with different theories. And one of my theories, which I don't think is shockingly original, but but certainly something that's come home with new force to me, is Paul is writing praise and worship songs and prayers and blessings in prison, which is what people in prison do. And he's memorizing them and loading them with theological content, and they're a principal mode of instruction, as he says in Colossians um, 3.16, I think it is. Um, and he's bringing these as, as sort of objects gifts really for communal worship and expecting a lot of other people to do the same so um, if you go and study other Christians in prison you'll see that this is what they do they pray, they think, they reflect they write, Martin Luther King wrote some of his most important stuff in prison um, they're, they're kind of fertile creative places uh, so that's one thing mm. the, the other thing that really happens in prisons is prisons kind of pour the acid on your theology um, they really pour acid on how you handle non-Christians and how you handle people who are in difficult places and difficult spaces so if you can't go into a prison with a gospel that really helps the people in the prison you don't really have a very good gospel yeah. you've got to be able to go in there and give the men and women who are struggling there something that really helps yeah um, beating them down, throwing them back on their own resources. This is not helpful. Mm. Um, inflicting them with more rules and laws. This is really unhelpful. They need to hear about a God who loves them and supports them and changes them and does that yeah. together, not by themselves, mm -hmm. in little communities that treat each other yeah. with kindness. Yeah. Yeah. So coming off of some of your major works um, I'm guessing a lot of readers uh, and listeners out there will have encountered Deliverance of God or the Quest for Paul's Gospel. They've or, probably seen it or seen them, yeah, maybe skinned them <laughs> maybe touched them and thought, yeah, yeah no way yeah that <laughs> <laughs> maybe looked at the size and the end notes and thought yeah, yeah nah um, what do you think will surprise people about the shift in tone in this book what, what surprises await people do you think? Hmm well, deliverance and framing Paul are clearing the ground in a way. Deliverance is essentially negative in the sense that it says, don't imprison the interpretation of Paul within this small group of texts, which is arguably um, being slightly misinterpreted, and which in any case is exerting an influence out of all proportion to its size. Right. Uh, and its distribution. And framing is trying to set up the biography and say, well, you know, we, we're often confused about Paul's life, where he was, what he wrote, and when. Let, let's really drill down and put things in the right place at the right time. So the stage is set, the ground is clear, but I haven't done the positive project yet. So what was Paul's gospel? How did he roll? 
How did he set up his churches? What was his emphasis or his set of emphases? And so on and so forth. And this book signals all of that in sort of brief compass. The whole shebang is in there. The A to Z. (laughs) Uh, For my American readers, A to Z is in here. And so it'll be, as you say, I hope... Surprisingly positive and also surprisingly challenging. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm out to make disciples. Yeah. Yeah, well. Wow. How then does the book relate to your future projects? Uh, have you got something else in the pipeline? Oh, yeah. Like yeah, I've this? got a doozy lined up. Yeah. Um, I've been working for a number of years now on a synthesis of Paul's thinking and theology, but, of course, um, now you'll know that that means the thinking and the theology that's interwoven very, very tightly with what he was actually doing, how he was acting yeah. in quite specific ways. His thoughts are acts, and his acts are also theological texts. Uh, so I've been thinking about how all this fits together. How do we start off with God, revealed through Jesus Christ, and end up with church planting and church nurturing and navigating cultural and gender diversity? Now, that's quite a long journey, and it's easy to lose one's way, and a lot of people don't know how to get from the A of Revelation to the Z of cultural navigation. But I think I finally got all my little ducks lined up in a row. It's taken me years to work it all out, and endless stacks of kitchen recipe cards. Oh my gosh. Reconfigured on the wall like a computer fractal, (laughs) changing from day to day. Finally I got them all lined up, and um, I'm really pleased because I think it... I think it is clear. I think it is challenging, um, but I think it is dynamic. I, th- I yeah. think I think the gospel and the vision of the church that Paul has is really simple, but very transformational. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm hopeful this will go well. And so this Paul and Apostles journey is like a snapshot. It is. It's a taster. That. It's an appetizer. Yeah, yeah. For the big work. That's, that's... right. These are the uh, the muscles au gratin, and they will be <laughs> followed up. By the uh, beef Wellington, and then I don't know what the creme brulee is going to be for dessert, but yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. I know you're making me hungry, and in fact, we do have a cake waiting for us. Gosh, outside. had not thought of that. Indeed. <laughs> Until we speak about food, we're going to need to eat. We so are. A huge... I'm weak. I'm faint with hunger yeah. from your questioning. <laughs> a huge thank you for joining us on, on Script, and we look forward to uh, the fruit of your work, and thank you very much for writing this incredibly challenging, um, profoundly, let me just quote Doug Harrington again, racy, page-turning blockbuster of a book. But is it amusing? Well, absolutely. Scott McKnight yeah. thought there are some, some good lines there's in some, there. There's some <laughs> funny lines in there. There you go. Yeah. I try. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it's been um, fun. That was Douglas Campbell speaking about his new book, Paul and Apostle's Journey. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And until next time. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.